The House returns today with first votes scheduled for 6.30 p.m. The House will stay in session through Thursday with the last vote scheduled to be no later than 3 p.m. The Senate also returns today with the first vote set for 5.30. The Senate is scheduled to stay in session through Friday. Last week on the House floor, the House came back into session on Tuesday and voted to pass two bills on the suspension calendar. On Wednesday, they passed two more bills, one of them under suspension of the rules. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 2810, the Fiscal Year 2018 National Defense Authorization Act. That's the NDAA. The bill provides $621.5 billion for base budget requirements and another $74.8 billion in overseas contingency operations funding. To put that in context, President Trump's request for Pentagon spending next year was only $603 billion, and the sequester spending level set by the 2011 Budget Control Act is just $549 billion. That's about $72 billion less than this bill authorizes. So to get this bill, or something like it, through the Senate, Republicans are going to have to cut a deal with Democrats that will probably involve breaking the sequester spending caps once and for all and letting domestic discretionary spending rise at least somewhat, if not a dollar-for-dollar increase, at least $1 of extra spending for domestic spending for every $2 increase in defense spending. After voting on 21 amendments over two days, five of which passed and were added to the bill. The vote on final passage was 344 to 81, with 117 Democrats crossing party lines to vote in support of the bill and just eight Republicans voting against it. During consideration of the bill, the House defeated an amendment offered by Representative Trent Franks of Arizona that would have required the Pentagon to identify Islamic leaders who preach beliefs versus those who espouse extremist views, which opponents said is unconstitutional and would lead to the targeting of Muslims. The amendment was defeated on a vote of 208 to 217, with 27 Republicans voting against it. An amendment offered by Representative Vicki Hartzler of Missouri that would have prohibited the Pentagon from paying for gender transition surgeries was defeated by a vote of 209 to 214, with 24 Republicans voting to kill it. And then they were done. This week on the House floor, the House returns today, the first vote scheduled for 6.30 p.m. They plan to take up three bills under suspension of the rules. Expect floor action this week on H.R. 2883, the Promoting Cross-Border Energy Infrastructure Act, H.R. 2910, the Promoting Interagency Coordination for Review of Natural Gas Pipelines Act, H.R. 218, the King Cove Road Land Exchange Act, and H.R. 806, the Ozone Standards Implementation Act of 2017. Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate came back into session on Monday and voted to confirm Naomi Rao to be administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs at the Office of Management and Budget. The vote to confirm was 54 to 41. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of David Nye of Idaho to be the U.S. District Judge for the District of Idaho. On Tuesday, Majority Leader McConnell announced that he would keep the Senate in session the first two weeks of August, thereby canceling 40% of the Senate's August recess. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm David Nye to be the U.S. District Judge in Idaho. The Senate also voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of William Haggerty of Tennessee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Japan. On Thursday, the Senate voted by 86 to 12 to confirm Haggerty to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Japan. And Leader McConnell began the Rule 14 process on H.R. 2430, the House passed FDA Reauthorization Act, so he can bring it directly to the floor.
Of course, the big news in the Senate on Thursday was the release of Majority Leader McConnell's updated version of the Better Care Reconciliation Act, about which we'll speak more in a moment. And then they were done. This week on the Senate floor, the Senate comes back into session today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. with a vote to invoke cloture on the nomination of Patrick Shanahan of Washington to serve as Deputy Secretary of Defense. Senator John McCain of Arizona underwent surgery on Friday to remove a blood clot just above his eye, and he'll miss a week's worth of work, possibly more. Consequently, Majority Leader McConnell has announced that the vote on the motion to proceed to consideration of the Better Care Reconciliation Act, version 2.0, which had originally been scheduled for Tuesday, will be delayed at least a week, and the week will be taken up with confirmation votes. Now, as Jenny Beth just said, remember, you can help us extend our reach for this broadcast if you'll just hit the share button on your Facebook page. Please share as soon as you can. Moving to appointments and confirmations. In addition to the confirmations discussed just now, FBI Director nominee Christopher Wray had his confirmation hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee last Wednesday. By all accounts, his testimony was reassuring to the assembled senators, and I don't anticipate any trouble for his nomination. That's the good news. The bad news is the Trump administration is running well behind previous administrations in terms of nominating and confirming its political appointees. So far, President Trump has nominated 197 people, of whom 48 have been confirmed. To put that in context, by July 11, 2009, President Obama, with a Senate then controlled by Democrats, had nominated 356 individuals and had confirmed 200 of them. As of July 11, 2001, with a Senate then controlled by Republicans, President George W. Bush had nominated 296 individuals of whom 149 had been confirmed. Moving to the debt limit, the Wall Street Journal reported last Friday that congressional Republicans are considering tying Veterans' Choice, a popular program that lets military veterans receive medical care outside the VA system, to the debt ceiling increase as a sweetener. President Trump has already signed legislation earlier this year that eliminated the scheduled August 7 expiration date for the program, and he extended the authorization until the program runs out of the $10 billion that Congress appropriated for it back in 2014. That account has just $821 million in it as of mid-June, according to the VA secretary, so it's likely Congress will act on the program before leaving town for the August recess. No final decision has yet been made. Now moving to Obamacare. Last Thursday, Senate Majority Leader McConnell released his Better Care Reconciliation Act, version 2.0. The news was mixed at best. The updated bill still does not repeal some of Obamacare's worst parts, like the insurance company mandates, the parts of Obamacare that are really driving up prices for insurance. Health insurance companies would still be required to issue policies that had a government-approved package of essential health benefits, They would still be required to issue policies to anyone with pre-existing conditions, and they still would not be able to charge less for healthy people than for sick people. The bill maintains some of Obamacare's most odious and counterproductive taxes, including the 3.8% net investment tax and the 0.9% Medicare surcharge. Oh, it has good parts. It does repeal the individual and employer mandates. It repeals most, but not all, of Obamacare's massive tax hikes, and it contains a Medicaid reform plan that's the most significant entitlement reform in a generation, 
In fact, the Medicaid reform alone makes this bill awfully attractive for conservatives concerned about federal spending. For the first time, the bill would remove Medicaid status as an entitlement program and would curtail federal funding of the program over the long term by switching from a matching grant, where the federal government matches state spending on a sliding scale anywhere from 1 to 1 to 3 to 1 in traditional Medicaid and up to 9 to 1 under the terms of Obamacare's Medicaid expansion, to either a block grant or a per capita grant, letting the states decide how best to use the funds for their own Medicaid population. The revised bill would lower out-of-pocket costs for individuals in the market by allowing them to pay their health insurance premiums from pre-tax dollars out of a health savings account. That's significant. Even better, thanks to pressure you helped bring to bear, it includes language very similar to the Cruz-Lee Consumer Freedom Amendment that would allow any insurance carrier that offers at least one Obamacare-compliant health plan to also offer new plans off the exchanges that would not be required to meet all of Obamacare's stringent regulations and could be tailored better to an individual policyholder's needs. But, and it's a big but, the way the bill is written now, insurance carriers would still be required to put all of their covered insured in the same risk pool, whether they're in an Obamacare-compliant plan or not. That would negate much of the benefit of creating the non-compliant plans in the first place. It would rob the non-compliant plans of lower prices, a key element of true consumer choice. And for that reason, Mike Lee of Utah has still not announced his support, because despite what the media is calling it, this isn't really any longer the Cruz-Lee amendment that Senator Cruz discussed last week with us on the TPP Sunday night webinar. Within hours of the plan's release, Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky announced their opposition to it. Though they may have not spoken up publicly yet, there are several others who are still on the fence, including Senators Rob Portman of Ohio, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Dean Heller of Nevada, John Hoven of North Dakota, and Jerry Moran of Kansas, along with Mike Lee of Utah. Senator McConnell had planned to bring up the motion to proceed tomorrow, but on Saturday we learned about Senator McCain's surgery and Leader McConnell's decision to postpone consideration of the BCRA until Senator McCain's return. So we're going to have to wait at least another week before voting on the motion to proceed. In that week, presumably, the Congressional Budget Office will release its new score of the updated version of the bill. In fact, the CBO is said to be scoring two versions of the bill, one with the new Cruz language and one without. And when that CBO score comes out, the moderate Republicans will have a new reason not to support the bill, because, as we've discussed before, CBO's model puts far too much faith in the power of the individual mandate to get people to buy insurance. In fact, the Washington Post published an excellent op-ed by Brian Blaze and Mark Short of the White House staff on that very topic, and you'll find it in this week's suggested reading. So, don't expect a vote this week. Remember again, if you would, you can help us extend the reach of this broadcast if you'll share it to your Facebook wall with your Facebook friends. Just hit the share button. Moving to the Russia probe. Last weekend's Donald Trump Jr. bombshell email exchange exploded and the damage is still being done. On Tuesday of last week, anticipating publication by the New York Times, Trump Jr. released the email chain behind his June 2016 meeting with the Russian lawyer. 
The email chain showed that he was asked to take a meeting with a woman later described in the email chain as a, quote, Russian government lawyer who was imputed to be in possession of what were called, quote, official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia and would be very useful to your father. This is obviously very high-level and sensitive information, but is part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump, end quote. Trump Jr.'s response, and I quote, seems we have some time, and if it's what you say, I love it, especially late in the summer, end quote. But that wasn't the end of it. On Friday, NBC News reported that there were others in the meeting. In addition to Trump Jr., Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, campaign chairman Paul Manafort, Russian lawyer Natalia Vazelnitskaya, and her interpreter, at least three others were present. Rob Goldstone, the British music publicist who sent the original email suggesting the meeting, Renat Akhmetchin, a Russian with dual American citizenship who's described as a former member of the Russian Military Intelligence Service, the GRU, and an unidentified representative of Iman and Aras Agalarov. Iman Agalarov is a Russian music pop star represented by Goldstone, and his father Aras is a Russian businessman and a business partner of Donald Trump Sr., this is the smoking gun Trump opponents have been looking for. It puts to rest any doubt that senior players in the Trump campaign, the candidate's son, the candidate's son-in-law, and the campaign chairman, were willing to take a meeting in the hopes of receiving help from the Russian government. Three senior members of the Trump campaign high command voluntarily took a meeting in the hope of getting help. The question is answered, and the Trump administration's credibility is shot on this topic at least. Let me put it this way, quote, we now have documentary evidence that the Trump campaign, fully aware that Putin's regime wanted to help Trump and damage Clinton, expressed enthusiasm and granted a meeting to a lawyer sensibly understood to be an emissary of the regime. Top Trump campaign officials attended the meeting with the expectation that they would receive information that could be exploited against Clinton. That is collusion, concerted effort toward a common purpose. We can argue about whether the collusion amounted to anything in this intriguing instance or over time. That's under investigation, and deservedly so. To my mind, though, it is no longer credible to claim there is no evidence of a collusive relationship. It is there in black and white. End quote. Those aren't my words. That's an excerpt of a piece published Wednesday of last week in the Washington Post by Andy McCarthy, a former federal prosecutor and a contributing editor at National Review. Trump Jr. and Manafort have both been invited to testify this week before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Trump Jr. will likely explain that he took the meeting out of courtesy to a business associate. He'll say that there was no follow-up from the meeting, no more phone calls or emails on the subject. He'll say he actually felt like the meeting was a waste of time and the time of two other senior campaign officials, and he felt bad for wasting their time. He'll say politics is a dirty business and everyone plays the game of opposition research. He'll say Clinton and Ukraine. Manafort will say even less. He'll confirm that he attended the meeting, but he will also remind senators of what both Trump Jr. and the Russian lawyer have said in interviews, that Manafort was reading his smartphone during the meeting and wasn't even really paying attention. He was there because the candidate's son had asked him to be there. And collusion itself is not a crime. There is no statute against colluding with a foreign government. But there are statutes against computer fraud like hacking someone's computer to steal their emails. 
two or more people working together to steal someone's emails would be a conspiracy, and there are statutes against that. No one has yet provided any evidence of conspiracy to commit any crimes, and no one has yet provided any evidence that anyone in the Trump organization had anything to do with anything illegal. But the no collusion argument is out the window. Finally, on the spending front, on Tuesday of last week, the House Appropriations Committee unveiled its proposed funding bill for the Department of Homeland Security, and it included a $1.6 billion fund for construction of a wall along our southwestern border. The bill would also add $620 million for interior immigration enforcement actions, including a 10% hike in the number of detention beds used to house illegal immigrants after they've been apprehended. But you ain't heard nothing yet. On Friday of last week, in a closed-door meeting of the entire House Republican Conference, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy announced that all 12 appropriations bills would be finished in the Appropriations Committee this week. And beginning Monday, that is today, the leadership will start a whip count to find out whether the conference will support wrapping all 12 of those bills into one giant trillion-dollar omnibus appropriations bill. McCarthy asked his members to read the 12 spending bills over the weekend and be prepared to discuss the prospect this week. That's hundreds of pages of appropriations, which is, shall we say, rather dry. Leadership wants the conference to commit to voting for the bill, whatever it looks like, before they take this route. Of course, there's no way such a bill would even get to the floor of the Senate. Democrats wouldn't let it. And because of that, I think the chances that the House Republicans ultimately decide to take this path are no better than 50-50. So we'll wait and see. And that's our Washington Report for this week.